Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Primate Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List. Uh, I got a joke for you today um, from the primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox. I love when people send me jokes. Uh, you can also, it doesn't have to be just jokes. You don't have to send me just jokes. You can message me at the primarycarepod uh, at gmail.com inbox and, and ask me uh, to review a study or talk about a certain topic or, or give me your feedback or opinions. Uh, we're, we're open to anything. But uh, this joke uh, comes from Anonymous, who also does not want to be named. Uh, Anonymous says, uh, Dr. List, imagine if Americans switched from pounds to kilograms overnight. There would be mass confusion. Oh, I love puns so much. Oh, so good. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Thank you for that uh, joke, Anonymous. Uh, If you want, uh, again, if you want me to read your joke on the air, uh, message me at uh, primacarepod at gmail.com. And uh, let Bob hit the music. Let's start the show. Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, medical students, interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients. It should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced in my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past, or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, podcast people, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. Uh, So I said I was going to try and get away from the topic and do something different. In fact, I literally, I literally, in this flash drive, you can hear it jingling, right? Bob, you can see this, right? Everyone can see this in the the podcast and studio here. Um, I, I have another podcast episode that is not related to covid I do. I, I, I literally have it in place because I wanted to talk about something that wasn't coronavirus, but I, I, I'm back at it. I'm back at it. And why? Because I think that, uh, number one, it, we're still absolutely, absolutely in the middle of a pandemic, so we can't ignore it. But number two is there's a really super duper interesting, juicy topic that I'm very invested in and very uh, was very hopeful and then very not hopeful and now not confused, but probably more depressed. And, and this is about hydroxychloroquine, Plaquenil, um, as it used to be called, but generic for hydroxychloroquine. Um, obviously this has been in the news. Uh, Donald Trump thinks it's the miracle cure. Um, this, uh, this doctor in the ICU in France says it's a miracle cure and is quoting the Hippocratic oath in that, uh, and, and, and quoting the Tuskegee Airmen trial that, uh, not, that about why he didn't do a control arm because it's akin to letting people die if you know you have a successful cure. So why would we ever have a control arm when I have when I'm giving the world a cure? Um, and we're going to talk about the three as I sit here today, known trials of Plaquenil. There might be a fourth. There might be more. Um, I'm, I'm going to pick on the three that I have uh, that I think are at least reasonable talking points. Um, for Plaquenil trials with the coronavirus outbreak, not previous trials, not not things, but actual in real life patients during this during this pandemic. Uh, we're not going to get into zinc. That's a whole different topic. Uh, if patients ask about zinc, sure, maybe maybe it'll help, but there's no scientific proof of it. I'm not going to talk about zinc today. Uh, I am going to talk about Plaquenil. I'm going to talk about Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine. Um, I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about azithromycin. We're going to talk about these three studies, one from Zhejiang University in China. We're going to talk about the Wuhan trial, and we're going to talk about the French trial. And so let's start with the French trial. 
okay? Uh, this is now over a week old that we got some preprint data uh, from the French uh, guy who, again, out of Marseille, uh, who um, have a, a preprint that has not been peer-reviewed or published yet. We do not have um, individual patient data, which is really concerning. And this is a treatment of 80 patients. Uh, median age was 52 years, range of 20 to 86, um, about one to one. They've got a lot of, uh, they're grouped into upper respiratory symptoms, lower respiratory symptoms. Uh, this is in hospital patients. The time between onset of symptoms to hospital admission, uh, you know, was about uh, five something days. Oh, where did I write that down? I can't remember now. Uh, but so they, they, um, they talk about the comorbidities noted. 46% uh, of the 80 have at least one known risk factor. In this data, in this data, only 15% of these hospitalized patients have fever, which is really confusing to me because um, from what the early case reports I saw, uh, the fever can last for 10 to 14 days in some people with, with coronavirus. Other people don't have fever. I get that. Um, but only 15% of the people in the trial had it. And, and very importantly, there is no control group. Okay, this is an interventional study only. Okay, uh, the regimen is very unique and question mark potentially important. Okay, in the French studies, they have hydroxychloroquine, 200 milligrams, three times a day for 10 days. The Korean studies were doing 400 milligrams BID, and this was just observational data, not really any control data, but just what they were recommending. Um, the Chinese studies you're going to see, one of them has 400 milligrams daily, and one has 200 milligrams twice a day. And then uh, in the French study, they also used azithromycin, so that kind of complicates when we're comparing studies. Can't really com compare these studies, but we're going to try. Um, azithromycin is the, the Z-Pack dosing, 500 milligrams day one, then 200 for the next four days. Not 250, but 200 for the next four days. Okay. I don't know if that's a misprint. I don't think that's a misprint. Um, uh, as I'm looking at the actual study here, which was in English, not French. Thank you very much. Um, it was 250 milligrams. Ha! I, I, I miswrote that. I wrote that down incorrectly. 250 milligrams for the rest of the four. So yes. And then um, if they their pneumonia got worse, uh, they were put on a broad-spectrum antibiotic ceftriaxone uh, in addition to hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Uh, they did screen these people for EKGs uh, and reviewed by senior cardiologists. I'm reading the study here. The treatment was not started or discontinued if their uh, QT was prolonged, a.k.a. greater than uh, 500 milliseconds. Um, and the benefit risk-benefit ratio is estimated to be between 460 and 500 milliseconds. So for your own EKGs in the hospital, consider that. Uh, other symptomatic treatments were done, oxygen, et cetera. Um, they did serum potassium levels. They did normal labs. Blood chemistry was checked. And then they discharged them if their pneumonia was improving. And then when they had two negative nasopharyngeal samples and had uh, negative um, uh, CT scans or, or negative PCR scans. And then if their uh, um, if, when possible, further follow-up was continued in other units or outpatient consultations because they needed beds, which makes sense because we're all going to need beds here pretty soon. Um, so the, the graph uh, on this study uh, is really interesting. Um, and again, this is preprint. This is uh, mediterranee-infection.com. Um, yeah, I don't, this is not like a, a real journal at all. Um, but let me pull up this uh, graph. And the graph is actually very beautiful. Um, the graph shows uh, the number of patients. Um, and it talks about um, 
their their recovery. You can hear me scrolling through because I'm really super prepared. This is a professional podcast, uh, really professional podcast. Uh, so basically, it looks at the number of patients uh, starting at 80, and then the number of patients with a positive um, with a positive uh, um, test, uh, nasal pharyngeal swab PCR test, and then uh, then over time. They look at from day zero to day one to day two to day three to day four to day five. They see a decline um, in the um, number of people who are positive in their PCRs. Okay, and they talk about discharge, and then they they the the black bar, which is the number of patients tested, goes down over time until eventually uh, day fourteen. Um, there's only like six people, eight people left. They don't have tick marks, but it's ten and under. Okay, so um, important that when we look at this. It's important that you see that on day one, okay, so from day zero to day one, there was a 20% cure. Sorry, math is, math is hard. Um, 10 out of 80. Uh, that, is, that is not 20%. I should go back and edit that, but I'm going to leave my mistake in there because I make mistakes. A 12.5% cure, if I'm reading this right. So it goes from 80 people who had, who were being tested, and then number of patients with a CT value less than 34. So basically, if I'm reading this right from this data, 10 patients overnight got a nas- negative nasal swab. So in, in 24 hours, this combination cured 12.5%. That, that's that that to me. That's baffling, okay? Um, and then the next day, there's another drop. So by day two, we're still testing, um, and 64 of them are positive. Okay, so, and, and it, it matters too. So like 20% of these people, like 10 to 20% of these people got cured overnight from this, like had negative viral loads, and... Your, your, your question might be, well, when were they admitted? When did they start treatment? We don't know. We don't, we don't have any data on when individualized patients were started on this medicine. We don't know what, what day in the course they were started. They were just, they were, they were given the trial because they were positive. They were in this unit. He was treating them. He gave them. They started tracking the data. So we're, we're not having a clean trial. So t- number one, you can already say like, this is super confusing. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly confusing. So these people were admitted to the hospital with varying times from when their onset of symptoms happened. But from the onset of treatment, they're taking credit for the cure rates, right? But we don't have a control to compare it to, which is the insanity of this study, right? When we're looking at is hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin effective, they can talk about how 97% of these people eventually had uh, nasopharyngeal negative swabs by day 10. Um, by day 7, um, you know, it's, I, I, I'm not even going to do the math here, um, but the majority, like only 15 people out of the 80 still had positive nasal swabs at day seven. Um, and it's like half of them were cured by day four. But the question is, how long do they have this? And were they going to get better on their own? They're not randomized. They're not matched to other patients. We don't know if these people were all on the end of their course. It's not clear if these people there's one patient who has died before being able to be treated in the ICU. Uh, three patients during this trial were transferred to the ICU. So 
These weren't even the sickest people in the ICU. These were just sick enough to be in the hospital getting oxygen and being monitored. So again, without comparison, without randomization, without basic scientific randomized control trial studies, without basic decent medical medical science, this this study is trash. I, I don't know if I don't know if 40 of these people who were cured by day four, I don't know if they've been admitted for 10 days already. I, I, I don't know that data. I don't I don't know how they do compared to people that didn't get this drug. It, it's it's absolute lunacy. There, there's this 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 paper is absolute trash. Um, and I was suckered into this because I saw the initial reports online of this guy who found this thing and they had viral, you know, virological uh, cure, cure that, that these people were all improving. Well, when you actually look, these aren't ICU patients. Uh, three of them were transferred to the ICU and two got back. Um, and one was still there at the end of the study at day 14, um, at least if I'm reading that right. Um, and again, it's, it's, I guess maybe I'm not Maybe I'm too dumb to understand all, but this isn't like a clear, like, we're going to admit them. We're all going to start treatment the day they're admitted. This just is kind of a hodgepodge of people about when their course started, et cetera. And I understand it's a hospital treatment. So it's not like you can't like, this is an outpatient. You know, these aren't people who are being seen in the clinic on day one of their symptoms being tested. And we can't, we can't test that, which would be really super helpful. But again, there's no controls. I can't even compare it to people who didn't get it. I, I don't know what the basic the, the basic is. I don't know what the baseline is. Sorry, not basic. Baseline is. Let's look at the other two studies since I've just spent 11 minutes, 12 minutes analyzing this. The Zhejiang, Z-H-E-J-I-A-N-G study had uh, 30 total patients. So again, a small number, a smaller number of N, meaning age 48. Again, this was the 400 daily uh no, no, no change. This was the study that showed that hydroxychloroquine by itself, anyways, completely negative study. Um, CT improvement was actually improved in the control group compared to the treatment group. Um, again, just like in the French study, they have when the PCRs are negative, 93% of the controls with no hydroxychloroquine, just with placebo, at day seven are. Um, oh, sorry, this was not placebo. This was just, these were just controls that were matched. Um, the 97% uh, on day seven uh, were 93% negative PCR swabs in the control group in this Zhejiang study. So is that, that makes it, that, that, that kind of puts into perspective the, right? So here's the controls in Zhejiang study and 93% of the controls have negative PCRs at day seven, right? So to put it in perspective, that French data doesn't look that impressive anymore. Um, when we look at the, the treatment group with hydroxychloroquine, 87% negative at day seven. So again, no statistical difference there. In the Wuhan study, 31 in the control group, 31 in the treatment group, they used the BID dosing, 200 milligrams BID, the Plaquenil, um, uh, the hydroxychloroquine. Fever improvement was earlier, day two, instead of day three in the control group. They didn't do the PCR um, negative swabs, that, that's, that's harder to compare, but in this group, 81% had CT scan improvement um, by day six compared to only 55% day six CT improvement in the control group. So this was a positive study out of Wuhan that did show some benefit in fever and CT scan improvement. And why do they use CT scans? Because everyone in China gets CT scans. Everyone, just everyone. That, I mean, it, was, it was more helpful getting CT scans with bilateral ground glass opacities than it was getting you know pharyngeal swabs and nasal pharyngeal swabs with negative 30% negative rates. So, um, so now 
again, this brings up a couple things. Number one is the French study is garbage. It is really garbage. And this is coming from somebody who, if I have patients who are getting sick and I'm going to be in the hospital uh, covering inpatient here in probably a couple of weeks, depends on what animal medical group wants to do with me. Herein lies the big ethical debate. And we're going to go over 15 minutes. I'm sorry. You can all have your money back. Uh, I'll refund you, uh, refund you the, the price that you paid for this, um, for this podcast. Uh, the $0 check is in the mail. I can also PayPal it to you as well, or uh, Apple Pay, your choice. Um, the ethics of this. We have all experts at this point, not case fatality rate, but the actual infection fatality rate based on what we think are the likely infectious infection fatality rate worldwide if you accumulate all the data that we have including what we know about the asymptomatic people who aren't being tested uh when we look at those places that are testing people and catching asymptomatics and and all the epidemiologists and statisticians have put that infection fatality rate at roughly one percent right this is not case fatality rate. these are not the these are not the actual positive cases, the, the amount that are dying, right? Because we're missing a ton of asymptomatics and we're missing a ton of uh, cases that are maybe not um, sick enough to be treated, tested, and we don't have the testing capabilities to catch everybody who's the mild cases who aren't going to the hospital. So again, uh, experts agree 99% of people are going to survive this. It's the 1% that die infection fatality rate. Okay. Um, knowing that 99% of people get better and knowing that we don't have good scientific evidence that Plaquenil, God, hydroxychloroquine, and azithromycin, we don't have clear evidence that they work. We don't have clear evidence that there's a mortality benefit. We don't have clear evidence that it prevents ICU admission. We don't have clear evidence that it, that it has any true statistical improvement. But we have very weak, poor quality data and now a couple of pieces of poor quality data that there's some small benefit. Should we ethically start hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin on every patient with COVID who gets sick enough to be admitted to the hospital? I, I am 100% going to say that even though hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin may have some benefit, 99% of people are not going to need this. We have no idea if starting it at day one of symptom onset here in the clinic, you know, I'm, I'm testing people, people are calling in, I'm sending them, referring them over to get tested. Uh, my patients are being no- notified that they're positive. I'm being notified that they're positive. I'm not immediately calling my positive cases and saying, here's hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Why? There's absolutely no evidence to say that it's going to make any statistical difference. I could be putting, you know, X percent, small percent, but real percentage uh, at risk for torsades um, and cardiac arrhythmias. I have no idea what this will do to the supply of hydroxychloroquine for the people who need it for their lupus and autoimmune diseases, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera. And I have no idea what it will do to nationwide stores of azithromycin for the hospitalized patients that need it to save their life for when they get a secondary bacterial pneumonia, right? So when the French guy who writes this study says on Twitter that it is unethical and should be considered malpractice for providers to not prescribe this combination because there is clear evidence that it is a cure, I have incredible, incredibly conflict 
of interest, a conflict of uh, conscious about this. Because number one, I want to do the best thing for my patients. And even if there is a very small chance that this is going to help, I'm going to prescribe it for them. Now, when I get moved to the hospital, which I'm going to get moved to the hospital here, I'm probably going to prescribe it for hospitalized patients because they are sick enough that they are at risk enough for dying for this. These are the people who we're at risk for. If my patients are incredibly high risk, uh, I might consider it in the super high risk patients. But again, I have no proof that it's going to work. I have n- We have no, no clear-cut evidence. And that's the big ethical dilemma is... If you're in the hospital, you're doing everything to save these people's lives. If in the ICU, you are throwing literally everything you can at these people. That's what the New York uh, ICUs are doing. That's what New Orleans, that's what Seattle is using. We are doing everything in our power because these are the people who are at risk. If you are sick enough to be hospitalized, you are probably sick enough to need this. Because once you're in the hospital, again, um, a, a very large percent of these people, not, not everybody, but a large percent of hospitalized cases, when they're that sick, they go downhill and they go downhill fast. Uh, as I'm as I speak, this literally a half hour ago, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, was just sent to the intensive care unit from his hospital bed. So when I'm in the hospital, I'm going to probably prescribe this to all hospitalized patients if we have the supply. Why? Because you are sick enough that we need to do everything to keep you alive. And and if this is a cure, then great. If this is marginally improving, then I'm going to do the marginal improvement to reduce the reduce the potential for a secondary bacterial pneumonia or reduce the second bacterial secondary risk of bacterial pneumonia. Right. Um, this is like covering somebody for antibiotics and then and then weaning them off when we know that they don't have uh, bacterial pneumonia. Okay. Um, in the outpatient world, I I really under a good conscience can't put patients on it. I, I, I don't think that you can, in a good conscious lease, I can't uh, do that. Again, if you're super duper high risk, maybe, but those super duper high risk people are going to be at risk for prolonged QT syndrome. I can almost guarantee you the types of people that I'm thinking of who are at high risk, I can think about their imaginary med list in my brain and run through all of my patients with the 14 meds already on their list. And I can guarantee you I'm going to be putting them at risk for QT prolongation and arrhythmias and torsades and all kind of nasty stuff. Um, so... Man, that was 20 minutes and we accomplished nothing. But I think I think the takeaway is these studies are trash. And the great debate isn't, are we going to use this? We're going to use this. When I'm in the hospital, I'm going to use this uh, if we have supplies. If I'm, in, if I'm covering ICU patients, I'm going to use this. God, if I'm covering ICU patients, please, please pray for the people of my city because they are absolutely screwed if I'm in charge of the ICU beds. L- let's hope I'm never in charge of the ICU beds. Um but, you know, I think I think if you're an intensivist, you're not you're not listening to this podcast, number one. But number two is you're already treating these people. The, I, I can almost guarantee you people around the globe are putting people on these drugs and they're not seeing it's a magical cure. I mean, if they were if right now, if the intensivists in New York and New Orleans were seeing that this was a magical cure and that none of their patients on these drugs were dying, then then we wouldn't we wouldn't be having this conversation. The news would already be leaked. These doctors would be screaming it on Twitter. This is a, this is a miracle cure. This guy in France was right. It's a miracle cure. That's not the reality, but if it gives our at-risk people a, a chance at, at lowering mortality compared to untreatment, I think we're all doing it. I think it's being done in the intensive care units, whether or not every hospitalist is doing it, I think is probably up for debate and probably not because of shortages and lack of supplies. And I hope every family practitioner out there is not doing that or internist out there or nurse practitioner or, or a, um, a physician assistant. Wow, I blanked on that. I apologize, PAs in the world out there listening to this. Um, but I don't think we should be prescribed into all of our cases. I don't think that's probably legit. Um, so again, I, I struggle with this. Um, 
Maybe there is something the TID dosing. I don't think so. Not based on the pharmacogenomics, not the pharmacodynamics of this. This is a half-life of 123 days, by the way. Plasma half-life of 123 days. Um, you get to a concentration max in the three-hour range, even with a 200 milligram oral dose. Um, it tails off incredibly slowly. So does daily versus BID versus TID dosing really matter? If you're a if you're an expert in pharmacodynamics or you're reading something differently in the pharmacokinetics of this, let me know. But um, from what I'm reading on Plaquenil, hydroxychloroquine, I'm terrible at that, sorry. Um, 200 milligram dose, uh, max max of about three hour range, and then tails off incredibly slowly with a half-life of 123 days, 10% excreted, um, metabolites uh, build up in the urine after three months, you can still see it after three months after your last dose. So um, yeah, it's still there. Um, whether you get uh, 200 milligrams versus 400 milligrams, I think there is a definite difference in the dose. Um, um, but yeah, so maybe there's benefit for BID dosing um, to avoid the QT prolongation and the concentration max. Um, so anyways, uh, this is my longest podcast to date about me rambling about these three studies that we have. Maybe there's a fourth one that I'm missing. Um, but the data is poor. There's been, a negative, there's been at least one negative study. Um, there's been at least one questionably positive study, and then there's been a miracle cure study. So um, take that for what you for what you want, uh, whatever your ethics say to guide you about whether or not you need better data before you prescribe stuff. Uh, if you're at risk people, I think we're all going to be doing it uh, in the hospital and ICU anyways. In the clinic, I'm definitely not going to be doing this. Um, I, don't, I don't think that the data is there to support it, even though I was so ho- optimistic and so ho- hopeful and so enthusiastic about this. Um, as of now, there's been there is ongoing trials with thousands and thousands and thousands of patients across the globe right now, but they are doing it the right way, randomizing it. They are doing it the right way with uh, with placebo controls. They're doing it double blinded. They are doing it with the correct scientific measures. And so, when we get the results two, three weeks from now, in the preprint data, and four weeks from now, and five weeks from now, and six weeks from now, when we talk about day two or, or wave two. Uh, re- reinfections or ongoing outbreak treatment management over the next several months. We will have real data. What you do between now and then is up to you and your conscious. Um, but again, I think I've laid out what I'm going to do. And I, uh, again, I, I hope this has helped you make decision on what you are going to do with treatment of your outpatients, with your inpatients, with your intensive care patients, with your ventilated patients. And uh, everyone stay safe. God bless. And I promise the next podcast will not be about coronavirus until I change my mind and it's about coronavirus. All right. Take care, guys. Uh, Remember, you don't have to stay up all night. Stay up to date. Uh, Have a great night. And please, 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 please stay safe.